Church of the Living Dead. A dead church. You know, that's an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? I don't mean a dumb ox, stupid animal. Sometimes I think my my dog has more sense than some people, but you didn't hear me say that. (laughs) But it's when you put two words together to make a phrase, and and the words are like opposites of one another, but, but it makes sense. It makes sense. And maybe the best example of that is jumbo shrimp. Whoever heard of a jumbo shrimp? Let me give you some more. Black light. Know what a black light is? Freezer burn. Oh, there's one. Freezer burn. Pretty ugly. Pretty ugly. Yeah. Good casserole. Oh, I'm, I'm stretching that one, I know. Rap music, postal service. Sorry if someone works for the postal service. <laughs> old news. That's old news, right? Um, The word oxymoron itself is an oxymoron because, as you might have guessed, it comes from two Greek words, which are opposites. One means sharp and keen, oskos, moros, dull, foolish. That's where we get the word moron. Um, You know, the the words shouldn't go together, but they do, and, and it makes sense. So a dead church, this has to be the ultimate oxymoron. It's It's the greatest of all contradictions because how can you have a dead church? especially if the living Jesus is there. How can a congregation be dead if the life of God is present? But I want to take a moment and describe such a congregation to you, pictured in your mind. The sanctuary is a morgue with a steeple. It's a congregation of corpses. You have embalmers for elders, undertakers for ushers, morticians for ministers. The pastor graduated from the theological cemetery. Their worship's a bit stiff. Every Sunday service, people drive in with their lights on in one long line. When someone joins a church, the office notifies the next of kin. The church bus is a hearse. Their church sign is a tombstone. They they do have one advantage because we know the Bible says that the dead in Christ will rise first. So they'll be ahead of everyone else. Maybe you heard about the little boy was in a hall of the church, and he noticed plaques on the wall, and his father came by and said, these are the names of those who died in the service. And the kid said, which one, the early or late one? Yeah. The scary thing is, these are God's people. They're, they're saved, but they're dead in their lives to God. I, I, I don't know, maybe that's not right, but it's, it's not something that happens overnight. And there is such a congregation Their story is found in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The church is in a city called Sardis, and they received a letter from Jesus talking about this. So our our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 3. And last month I I preached on the first 11 verses, first 11 verses of Revelation. I I encourage you to, I know it's hard, right, but we, we need to wrestle with it. We need to wrestle with hard things in the scriptures. I encourage you to read through it, to read through it. Take some time and study it. And in chapter 3, I'm going to read the first, first six verses. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. 
Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You probably never heard of the place, but Sardis was one of the great cities of the ancient world. Initially, it was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. And if you notice, there's a a little city called Troy, right? Helen of Troy, the Trojan War, the Trojan Horse. That was part of Sardis. Sardis was at the junction of five main roads. It was a center for trade. Its name was synonymous with success, with wealth, with prosperity. It was known for its manufacturing of wool and clothing. It was situated on a high plateau, so it was, it was thought to be impervious to assault. You know, if an enemy army came, they were, they were up high and they would have the advantage. The city had everything going for it, but it, it all led to a smug self-sufficiency. And the time came when the Persians under King Cyrus attacked, and there weren't any watchmen on the walls because they felt so secure. And so the Persians came up, they conquered, and the city never recovered. By the time of the writing of Revelation, the end of the first century, it's, it's only a shadow of its former glory. It's, it's run down. And worse there, the church, which would have been established a few decades earlier, was in the same condition. Some think it was an outreach of Paul's ministry to Ephesus. Proud, smug, self-sufficient, cruising on past momentum. Both the city and the church were, were alive in name only. Each of these seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are addressed to the angel of the church. And remember, the word angel just, just means messenger, and some think this then is speaking of the pastor or the leader of each congregation. Also keep in mind this writing is from the hands of the apostle John. He's in exile on the island of Patmos. This letter would go by the messenger to each of the churches following the road system which connected them. And in this message, Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And uh, yeah, that's, that's why revelation is hard. But the expression seven spirits of God, it's strange, but as we said back in chapter one, it's a reference to the one Holy Spirit. And the seven stars is a reference to the seven churches listed in chapters two and three. And I don't want to, I don't want to skip over that. But I, I want to focus on the church that Jesus is addressing. He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. As we all know, you can't hide anything from God. He sees the situation for what it truly is. You cannot cover it up. You can't use spin doctors, right? Those, that's, a, that's a term, right? Uh, a spin doctor is a person who's good at taking a story and spinning it, changing it into a different, different version. 
With God, you cannot twist the truth. You can't manipulate public opinion. The Lord sees everything for what it truly is. And as, as we might guess, Jesus is very displeased with this congregation. It's a dead church. And the dead church will do more to hold back the cause of Christ than all the persecution in the world. Jesus himself ran into dead religion when he was here on the earth. And it was those individuals who put him on a cross. A reputation of being alive, but in reality, they are dead. In the ancient world, one of the punishments practiced for the crime of murder was, was to take the corpse and to tie it to the murderer. What a picture. It seems gruesome. The living person, though, would eventually die because the rotting flesh of the deceased would eventually contaminate and decay the flesh of the person who was alive. The church in Sardis is like this, apparently alive, but actually it's dead and decaying. When Jesus says they have a reputation for being alive, that's, that's what he means. At one time they were alive, but, but now the opposite is true. They're like a rotting corpse. The people are there. Maybe they're doing all the things they should be doing as a congregation, but there's no spiritual vitality. There's no real life. Let's, let's imagine this church, the first, first church of Sardis, whatever we call it. It's a great place be a great place. Yeah, it'd be revered, it'd be respected by the community, have a nice reputation, but there's no comment here by Jesus over false teachings or immorality. Those, those we see in some of the other letters to the other churches. As a visitor, you'd probably be impressed, right? Maybe the church is active, there's a lot going on. Maybe, maybe a large congregation and people are joining all the time. Good ministries. It, it, it looks good on the outside. That's what reputation is. But outward decept- appearances are deceptive. And no doubt, if you, if you ask the people, they'd be proud of, of their accomplishments and everything that's happening. But, but that's the problem. For all the good that seems to be there, it's actually a spiritual graveyard. So the reputation is good, but the reality is far different. You know, reputations are a funny thing. We often think more about what other people are thinking about us than what they're really thinking about us. Think about that. It said by the time you're 20, you've spent a lot of worry in your life thinking about what other people are thinking about you, right? You worry what other people think. Then you hit 40 and it starts to slow down. And when you hit 60, you realize... No one's been thinking about you at all. It's all in your mind. Yeah. We have to realize the distinction between reputation and reality. The difference here is between what we see and what God sees. We we do have important responsibilities to others, but we are accountable to God. It is before him we must stand, and one day we will give an account to him for our lives and we, we should be careful about accepting what other people think about us. We need to watch out. We shouldn't rate human opinion too high because it's, it's easily, too easy to become flattered when people say nice things and then also easy 
to be discouraged or depressed if people say something bad. And we all do this to some extent for another. I, I, I do it too. But we need to put God's opinion first. We should remember the story of David. When Samuel the prophet went to pick one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel. David wasn't even considered. But we have that great verse, Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And David was chosen as the next king. The Lord sees things as they truly are. This was the problem with the church in Sardis. They had become so enamored, so proud of, of their reputation, that they lost all spiritual power. And this problem is found throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah, Amos, and Jeremiah were constantly warning the people. They went to great pains to teach this to Israel. It must have been a sad sight to see the temple full of worshipers and rigorous, rigorous duty and devotion and the sacrifices being offered and people coming. But God said through Isaiah the prophet, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And as I already said, Jesus, Jesus ran into this as well. He even quoted this verse from Isaiah against the religious leaders. I want to want to look at this a little bit, take you back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talked about this a lot. In chapter 6, he says, verse 2, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites. You know, don't, don't toot your own horn, don't blow your horn. Verse 5, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. They're, they're making a show of their prayers. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. They look miserable. <laughs> they want you to know, right, how spiritual and holy they are. Now, this isn't speaking against public acts of worship. Public worship, acts of righteousness, the issue here is our motives. Are we doing this for the Lord, or are we doing it for other people to see? This continues throughout the gospel. It reaches a high point in chapter 3. Seven times Jesus uses the expression in this chapter, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Timothy faced the same problem. The apostle Paul wrote to him about those who had a form of godliness but denying God's power. They had a form, an image of godliness, but they denied God's power, 2 Timothy 3, 5. This, this ugly tendency is, is seen throughout the Bible. It's reputation without reality, outward appearance without inner life, form without power. And if I asked you what the word for this is, you've, you've heard it already, right? You've already guessed it, it's hypocrisy. In Greece, the word hypocrite originally referred to an actor. An actor. That's a person on a stage. They're, they're playing a role. They're, they're doing something, right? They're, they really aren't in, in real life. So hypocrisy is make-believe. It's the let's play church concept. And we apply this to many areas. It's not just a religious term. It's a big problem. 
especially though for God's people. Because we can sing the hymns and choruses, we can read the scriptures, recite prayers, we can, we can do it all, but our hearts can be somewhere else. Leaders of the church can be guilty. We pastors can be the worst. We can, we can preach and not have the right heart. We, we can do it to, you know, maybe make ourselves look good, but not to lift up Jesus Christ and minister to others. But all Christian activity, if it's done with the wrong motive, it's, it's dead and hollow. It's dead and hollow. And this operates on some different levels. One is corporate, the entire congregation, but the other is personal. And as we seek to remember Jesus this morning, that's, that's what I want to, to talk about. Jesus came to bring life. He came to bring life. But sometimes his people, the inheritors of eternal life, become the living dead. And our spiritual life can wither away. And we, we end up going through the motions. This can happen and we're not even realizing it. Just like the church at Sardis, the reputation of being alive, but in reality they were dead. Maybe there was a close walk with the Lord. People noticed something was different about you, but no longer. Now you're dead. Maybe you were active in the church. You were involved. You were, you were leading a ministry. You were, you were caring for others. You were involved in some way, but now it's dead. You're just going through the motions. Maybe you had dynamic devotions. You, you did read your scriptures daily. You, you prayed daily. It was important to you, but no longer. And it, it can happen. It, it can happen many different ways. Our lives can become so busy that the things of God start to get, get squeezed out. Personal sin can bring separation. Maybe you haven't agreed with something that's gone on in the church Maybe the pastor said something you didn't like. Maybe you're upset at someone else in the church. And this can go on for months, and it starts small, but it, it grows. And you start to doze off, and then you're dead. But we have to get back on track. How can this be accomplished? I think Jesus gives us the answer. Step one is found in verse two, is, is wake up. We have to wake up. If we are spiritually dead, we need a cold washcloth on, on the face, face to get us moving. We need some cold water, some spelling salts. We, we need a spiritual alarm to go off in order to warn us. There were still some people left in Sardis who weren't like this. They were following the Lord. And so the, the idea here goes from death to sleep, you, because you can't appeal to a dead person to wake up. So some of the church members were snoozing rather than dead. Jesus says, raise yourselves from your slumber. There's still some, as in verse 4, who had not dirtied themselves, and they could still manage to do this. They could hear this message. The failure to be awake, to be alert, had caused the city to be captured by the enemy before. This would be in their minds. They knew their history. So the citizens of Sardis, these would be appropriate words to gain their attention. Step two, strengthen what remains and is about to die. You know what it's like to get up and lay in bed and fall back asleep? <laughs> yeah. You got to wake up. Don't fall back. Something has to be done. 
We, we have to take what remains, what is still there in our lives, and strengthen it before it dies. This, this refers to the basics. Prayer, worship, fellowship, Bible study. The idea of strengthening is used by the apostles in their letters to speak of, of growing and being nurtured in the Christian life. Jesus is saying, get back to the basics which are still left. We have to throw off the covers. We have to get out of bed, even on cold mornings. <laughs> we have to get dressed, and we've got to get with it. It may mean a regular Bible reading plan, setting aside a time each day to pray, becoming more regular in your church attendance, being involved in, in some ministry at the church. Um, whatever it is, strengthen what is there before it disappears. And the reason for this is the work that we have to do as a congregation, it's, it's not finished. It'll never be finished. And the reputation of the past will never accomplish the work that needs to be done today. Third, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. And what is this? Well, that's what they heard in the beginning, and that's the gospel. They had received the basic truths of the Christian life. These, these are not given to us so we can live in the past. They're for today. We do need to remember we have a rich spiritual heritage as God's people. Jesus is saying, remember how you were saved. Remember what were you like before God changed your life. Remember how God's grace reached down to you and redeemed you. Recall and reflect on what you used to be, and let that motivate you to turn back, to turn back to where you belong. A fourth step is this, obey. Here is the appeal of Jesus to keep his commandments in every area of our lives. Disobedience and death are two sides of the same coin. Whenever you find one, you're going to find the other. We need to take God's truth and make it a part of our lives. Selective obedience, just, just choosing and picking what we want to do, that's not obedience at all. It's just convenience. There was a couple talking about taking a trip to the Holy Land, and one of them said, hey, wouldn't it be great to go to Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments? And the other said, it might be better if we stayed home and kept them. Fifth, repent. And this is a call to turn around and come back to Jesus. And repentance means just that. It means to turn and go the other way. The sin of spiritual dryness requires an immediate about face. We have to put behind us the sins, the habits, the practices, whatever we've fallen into. We have to go back to where we belong as the people of God. We have to let go of our sins. Because that's our only choice, our only option. Another story, a little boy got his hand caught in a vase. His mom couldn't, couldn't get it out. She tried everything, tugging, soap, you know, maybe a little grease or oil or something. It wouldn't happen. She was getting ready to, to break it with a hammer to get her son's hand out. And as she was ready to hit it, he said, Would it help if I let go of the pennies? And all too often, that's our problem. We don't want to let go. We don't want to let go. We have to turn sin loose if we're to turn our lives around. Finally, 
What if we don't repent? Jesus warns us he then will come like a thief, unexpectedly and unannounced. This, this is not a reference to the second coming where we sometimes hear this. Instead, it points to a coming of Jesus to judge this church in order to discipline it. Jesus says he's going to come unannounced to take whatever's left. That's harsh. That's harsh. And why would he do it? Because, again, nothing holds back the gospel like a dead, lifeless church. In a way, he's saying it'd, it'd be better if, if you weren't there, right? If, if, if the church were gone, than for it to continue on, because it's doing more harm than good. Well, the good news is Jesus does have something good to say. There's still a faithful remnant, a committed group of followers. Do you know what a remnant is? What a remnant is? It's, it's those leftover carpet pieces, right? That was a joke. Oh, man. Must, must be getting cold in here. In the Bible, the concept of a remnant is important. It is important. It does show up. There was a time when humanity had fallen into so much sin that God was going to send a flood. But he found a remnant, Noah and his family. There was a time when Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them were so evil that God sent angels. And and he would spare everyone if only a few righteous people could be found. But there, there weren't enough. And so only Lot... And even less than Noah's family made it out. The nations of Judah and Israel were each judged for their sin. But God allowed a faithful group of followers to return to the promised land. Though your people, O Israel, be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will return. Only a small portion. And it's to this remnant Jesus says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. Historians tell us the citizens of Sardis had, over the course of many years, uh, acquired a reputation for lax morality, lax standards. Worldliness may have crept into the church and spread. So beneath the pious exterior, there would be uncleanness. But there's, there's still a few. There's still a few. They were walking in white garments, portraying their moral purity. They had not soiled or compromised their Christianity. And they will continue on with Jesus, living with him. And these are the ones who have remained true. They have escaped the pollution of this world. They have lived holy and righteous lives. While many in the church had gone to sleep, they had remained awake. And I love... I love the gracious promise of Jesus to those who overcome. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. The overcomer is the one who faces the challenge of living in this fallen world. Those who do so will, like like those in Sardis, be dressed in white. And this image would connect with the people of Sardis, as it was a center for the wool industry. 
And we know white in the scripture symbolizes purity and holiness. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. But this is interesting because what, what do the white garments here represent? We do know that no one is ever worthy of salvation based on their own merit. You, you can't earn, you know, you, you can't buy your way into heaven. Justification is a gift given through faith in the finished work of Jesus. It's, it's based on his worthiness. But the white garment mentioned here is given as a reward for a worthy walk. If our Christian life is not worthy, if we have soiled our garments, then we are dirty. I want to I put the verses up there together. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. Walking with Jesus in white is a reward for personal righteousness or deeds of righteousness. What we do matters. Our, our choices have consequences. And this fits with Revelation 19, where it talks about Jesus. It says, The wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The wedding image is used several times in the Bible. Jesus has, has come for his bride, the church. And how is the bride dressed? In a beautiful, a beautiful white wedding dress, a gown, which are her deeds, like, like this wedding picture here. What a cute couple. Man, nice looking couple. And once again, this isn't speaking about salvation but of a holy life, not falling into the sins which would soil our clothing and stain them. Then we find our names are recorded in the book of life. God has a book. In the ancient world, your name would be recorded on the records of the city where you lived. If you committed a crime, your name could be removed. We, we had the same thing, right? Cities, counties, different areas keep records. When I go to vote, someone at the poll knows me. I live in town. They check the records. They say, yep, that's Joe. He lives at 311 East 4th Street. Jesus says the same thing. Your name's in the book, and I will acknowledge you before my Father and his angels. Now, some think the book is symbolic. After all, shouldn't God have a computer by now? <laughs> yeah. But I, I think there are some heavenly realities the scriptures talk about. Heaven is, is it's not some vague spirit world. Not, it, ah. And I think we see this throughout the Bible. I want to give you some examples, starting with Moses. When Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai to receive the commandments, the people created the golden calf and things got out of hand. God was angry. But Moses told God, he said, Now please, forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Take my name off the roster. 
Daniel writes this. He's talking about the end of the age. He says, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Jesus told his disciples, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And at the end of Revelation, it speaks of the final judgment. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Lamb's book of life. Let's remember the words of Jesus during his ministry on earth when he said something, something similar. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. I want to point this out because what Jesus says here in Revelation chapter 3 is, is a double negative. Yeah, it's English class today. You remember what a double negative is? So when we use two negatives in the same sentence, and, and the best example is, is something like, I don't have nothing. Don't and nothing are, are negatives. That's, that's bad English. But it's actually good Greek. Yeah. Because in the Greek language, and some others around the world, it means there's an emphasis on this. It, it gives a stronger force. And so we need to underline the words, I will never. It's a double negative. I will never, Jesus says, never blot out your name from the book of life, but will acknowledge it. Yeah. That's strong. That's security. There may be times when you feel like things are against you. The world's against you. Well, well, it is. But always remember Jesus is for you. I love what Jesus says in John 10. He says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Oh, what a picture. My question is, which group do you find yourself in? We, we don't want to be with a larger group that's spiritually dead. We don't want to be on our way there, falling asleep. Or are we with the smaller group who have remained true? Are you an overcomer? If there's any deadness, we need, we need to follow the words of Jesus and find the life he offers. We're always in the same position as the church of Sardis. We have a choice whether we're going to heed the words of Jesus here. And the issues are too serious for us to play the hypocrite. We live in a hurting world. Our communities, our, our own lives. The needs are too great. We cannot play religion or trifle with God. A reputation is insuffici- insufficient. We need to have the inner reality. We need to have the purity which is known and pleasing to God. We cannot soil our garments with the dirt in the world around us. In chapters 2 and 3, there's seven churches, seven letters to everyone. In each one, Jesus says, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up. Pay attention. We need to pay attention. We must hear every word that is spoken. Let me pray. Father, thank you. For the message which came through your son to John, to us today. We're setting pretty good compared to John because he was in exile, a political prisoner of Rome. So we're we're setting pretty good. We can never take, we can never take what we have for granted. We have to make sure we're not, we're not living on past glories or what we've done, done in the past. Yeah, we, we want to have good reputations. We want people to think well of us, that we're, we're doing okay. But we need to consider the reality And if we as as individuals are living up to the standards that you've set for us, help us to search our hearts. Help us to take time. Let your Holy Spirit reveal to us anything that's keeping us from you, and let's deal with it. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.